Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I usually teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah, but not right now. Right now, I'm doing a series on how not to waste your time and with bad study practices, bad resources, and just the general confusion that I faced when I started studying the Bible and was trying to figure out what to do and whose books I should read. Bottom line, I read a lot of nonsense and spent a ton of money on it. I'm going to give you some basics on how to avoid a lot of the pitfalls, save money, maximize your time and effort, and how to get the most out of what you are doing. And I have a master book list of the resources that I used for this and that I will be using. I'll be adding to it um, linked in the transcript on my website at theancientbridge.com. Now, in part one, I talked about the importance of scriptural authority in ancient times and how authority was attributed not to words on paper, but to the source of the spoken words themselves. For example, the authority of the Torah didn't rest in words on paper, because, you know, they didn't have it, but in having Moses as the source, it was Moses who was the authority. It wasn't really until the time of Rashi that the letters and specific words themselves were considered important, even though we accept that as normative today and assume that's how things always have been. But in almost exclusively illiterate societies where literacy was just a special skill set needed for certain rare jobs, it was the spoken word that carried the weight of authority and not the written Writing things down was for contracts and royal archives and such. Things that never touched the lives of ordinary people. With the things that were truly important, they were passed down through the generations orally so that they couldn't be locked away somewhere inaccessible. Remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 through 14. This command that I give you today is certainly not too difficult or beyond your reach. It is not in heaven that you have to ask who will go up to heaven and get it for us. As if it's something that can be held and proclaim it. That's oral right there to us so that we may follow it. And it's not across the sea as if it was a thing so that you have to ask who will cross the sea, get it for us, and proclaim it, orally again, to us so that we may follow it. But the message, dabar, speech, spoken word, is very near you, in your mouth, so that you can also speak it to your generations as per the Shema, and in your heart, what, not on paper, so that you may follow it. And I understand this can be jarring, and sometimes people freak out a bit and assume I'm saying that written Bibles and personal study are bad, but I never said anything of the sort. I am just saying that they are modern, and that we make assumptions about them and how they received and transmitted the Dabar of Yahweh based on what is normal for and important to us. Scripture was an oral community experience, and as such, it had what written scripture doesn't have much of. Indications of tone and mood. In fact, you know, once you have it pointed out to you, you see it everywhere. 
like learning about covenants and honor-shame language. But what about the first century? How had things changed? A lot and not so much, actually. Something that changed drastically after the time of Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, was the need to communicate with other Christian communities over long distances. But even with that, we do not see it happening for at least 20 years after the resurrection. When Yeshua walked among us, he spoke. John the Baptist spoke, and people went to hear him. Yeshua traveled and spoke probably delivering the exact or pretty much the same message wherever he went and speaking parables in response to specific questions or local situations. His ministry was mostly self-contained in Galilee, and I'm going to link a map in the transcript, and only rarely did he venture to the west, north, and east into Gentile territory or south into Samaria and Judea, you know, where he went for the festivals. But his ministry was really kept to a rather small geographical area, Galilee being not only very small, but also rather mountainous as well. It would not have been impossible for him to have preached to everyone in the region, nor would it have been impossible for crowds to follow him, quote-unquote, everywhere, even though that's kind of an exaggeration. I think here in the States, we might think of Galilee as being like one of our medium-sized states, but it absolutely isn't. I'm going to link this really cool resource where you can take a map of all of modern-day Israel and move it around on a U.S. map to see how small the entire country is, and then remember that Galilee is only the northern part of that country. So John the Baptist spoke his message. He didn't have scrolls out there in the wilderness to read from or a scribe writing everything down. Yeshua and his disciples traveled around the Galilee speaking the message of the kingdom and there is never any mentions of scribes following him and recording his words because it would have been completely unnecessary. His words were being stored in his disciples through repetition and rehearsal. And when they set out in twos, they knew the message well enough to be entrusted with it. For example, and this is for folks my age and older, how many phone numbers did you have memorized when you were a kid and didn't have them stored away, you know, in a cell phone and you had to enter them into the phone via, you know, a rotary or with buttons every single time? A lot, right? Can you do it now? No? (laughs) Why not? Because we don't have to anymore. When we had to, and when it was beneficial, we were all like a regular walking Rolodex full of random numbers. In fact, it's hard for us to believe now how much they had memorized because, you know, we walk around with tiny little computers in our pockets and we just have no need anymore to remember things. We can always do what we have to and what we don't have to. We just, we lose the ability to do or or we just don't. They had to remember the stories and the content of the message. And so they did. No scribes needed. 
They had their excellent memories, even if they didn't always understand the point of what they were remembering. After the resurrection, when all they had learned began to make sense, they were still only preaching within the land of Israel for about the first 10 years and not surprisingly focused their attention on Judea and Jerusalem, who'd not been privy to the overwhelming majority of Yeshua's teaching ministry. And they preached the message verbally and performed the miracles that Yeshua had performed in Galilee, which accompanied the message. And that was entirely sufficient. No need for anything written down. Of course, they had the Torah scrolls now and, you know, had for hundreds of years. But the gospel traveled by word of mouth and was attested by signs and wonders. It wasn't until the time of Paul that something new was needed. Paul traveled around preaching the message of the kingdom and planting congregations wherever he went. But it was over such a large area that things could get off track very quickly in his absence. And so the solution to this problem came in the form of epistles. Letters carried by messengers. But here is what many fail to understand about these letters. They were performance art. Paul would speak a message intended for a certain congregation. Often in response to specific messages he himself had received from them or about them concerning regional difficulties and interpersonal problems. Sometimes these problems are universal, like infighting, right? And others more time-bound in nature, uh, like those dealing with imperial cult controversies within the Roman Empire. And others were specifically limited to a city or region. The problems in Ephesus related to women being entirely uneducated and trying to fit in for the first time with congregational life, you know, outside the cult of Artemis. Or cultural problems, like long-haired men and married women going without their head coverings in the Roman colony at Corinth. Paul couldn't travel every time there was a question, uh, but he could send a message on parchment, carried by a messenger he trusted, who had heard him speak it out loud and understood the context and his tone, and spoken aloud to the specific congregation. For example, we actually see this in Romans. Now, these cases shouldn't be confused with personal letters, like the letter to Timothy, which, you know, wouldn't need to be performed. But in the letter to the congregation in Rome in chapter 16, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Cancreae. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Now, why is this even important? What is Paul saying here? Everyone else gets a greeting, but Phoebe gets a recommendation and an introduction. Paul is telling the congregation in Rome to receive Phoebe to welcome her, to extend hospitality. Phoebe almost certainly carried the letter from Corinth, where Paul was, which is about five miles west of the port of Cancreae, 
to the Roman congregation. This was a very important job, being entrusted with personal correspondence between Paul and the Roman believers. She also would have been the person who read it aloud to them as she was a witness not only to what was said, but to how it was said. She would be the one to whom questions about what Paul meant would have been addressed. Being a messenger in that world was a lot more than just delivering the mail. She would have been responsible for getting the message there, but also delivering the content of it accurately in words and tone. In effect, as Craig Keener has pointed out, she was almost certainly the first teacher of the Epistle of Romans. Let's be honest, Romans would undoubtedly be easier to understand if we were reading it as it was intended to be heard and understood. All letters to congregations would be handled in this manner, and perhaps even some personal correspondence as well, in a language devoid of spaces between words, you know, Greek, the messenger had not only to be trustworthy, but also very intelligent and able to field questions. It was also likely that this was the same reason why the gospel accounts began to be written down around the same time. News stories are notoriously more difficult to spread accurately than old stories, which have been practiced generationally to the point where the listeners could spot errors. The more people heard an initial story, the more accountability, but Paul had never heard anything firsthand, and neither had the Jews or Gentiles he preached to in the diaspora. They were being saved and coming to faith and allegiance to Yahweh through Yeshua, which is the important thing. But with hundreds or thousands of miles for the story to travel, it's easy to see how nonsense could get injected into the stories or local superstition added in. And so probably Mark was written first and John last. The writing styles are entirely different, reflecting very different storytellers who were giving the same account in different ways depending on which facet of the story they were being led by the Spirit to tell. For Matthew writing to a sectarian Jewish Christian audience, Yeshua was the second and greater Moses. Mark presents us with Yeshua as the Yahweh warrior slash arm of the Lord of Isaiah, personally leading the second exodus, and probably written to the congregation in Rome. Luke gives us Yeshua the storyteller, and John presents us the high Christology of Yeshua, the spoken creative word of Yahweh, who is one with the Father. And they are very different and obviously come not only from different viewpoints, but also draw from different oral sources. Some of it is exactly the same, but as the gospel traveled, we would expect to see different apostles, teachers, etc., emphasizing different aspects of his message and ministry. The gospel is alive, you know, not on rails so that all four accounts should tell us the exact same story in the exact same way. That would be useless. That's how oral culture works, even when it begins to be written down so that it can travel far, far away from Jerusalem. In fact, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but religion very much one of the main reasons that anything was ever written down in the first place. 
rituals, omens, prophecies, temple records, banking records, because, you know, ancient temples actually functioned as banks. And of course, we've already talked about the importance of archives and royal correspondence. The gospel, of course, should be absolutely considered royal correspondence, and so it was vital that it be delivered orally and face-to-face to the people. As the authority of the Torah was that it was spoken by the mouth of Moses and not that it was written down, so the authority of the gospel came from it being spoken by Yeshua. And not only that, John tells us that Yeshua is the Logos, the spoken word of Yahweh, because that is where the authority came from. His spoken words. Let there be light. Words of authority. He didn't write these things down and boom, they happened. He spoke. Yahweh spoke to Adam and Eve and the serpent and then to Cain and to Noah. Yahweh spoke to Abraham and then appeared and spoke to Abraham. He sent angelic messengers to speak to Lot and to Hagar and to Joshua. He spoke to Moses mouth to mouth as friends do. He speaks in dreams and visions. He spoke to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron and to the children of Israel and the mixed multitude through Moses and to the people through the prophets. Yahweh speaks and speaks and speaks. And so the Bible is a book that is meant to be heard and experienced not as written correspondence so much as relationally conversational. The Bible is largely a huge conversation between Yahweh and his creation. And it's huge and game-changing because whereas the Greeks often believed that the gods were distant and uninterested, it requires a lot of interest and stooping to our level to communicate with us in ways that we can understand and Yahweh must restrict himself in many ways in order to do it. Communication is inherently a concession where the person reaching out with words has to do everything in their power to be understood. It's why the explanation I would give you about absolutely anything wouldn't be the same way that I would explain it to a small child. I have to meet them with these simple concepts they've already mastered so that I can use what they already understand, which may or may not be entirely accurate, to explain to them what they don't understand yet. Telling kids what I know and expecting them to catch on would make me a jerk and not a teacher. And actually, that brings to mind the day that Yahweh actually made me a teacher. I was sitting in a mall with a friend who, you know, he had visitation with his kid there, and he he asked me to explain something to him out of the Bible, and I cringed because I couldn't teach a pig to roll in the mud. But I got a piece of paper, and the explanations began to spill out of my mouth in a way that made perfect sense, and he got up and danced. Seriously, he danced. He's an emotional guy. He's from Africa, you know, and they don't mind dancing in public. Or at least he didn't. So the next time you look at scripture and are confronted with a factoid that is incorrect, I don't want you to sweat it. I want you to think about the fact that the cost of teaching truth often comes in the area of accuracy. If your kids have asked where babies come from yet, you know that it is possible to be honest without being accurate or to relay concepts without being graphically honest. God does this with us from the first to the last page of scripture because we are not where he is at in any way, shape, or form. 
He can't express to us what he knows because we're too stupid and limited to even begin to grasp it. And if we tried, our brains would likely explode from the input. Like those silly old movies where you feed too much data into a computer, it starts shaking and blowing out black smoke and sparks and then just dies. Oral transmission of what later became written scripture was a concession to what they were capable of understanding. Written transmission of God's spoken words was also a concession to the culture and the growing needs of the culture and the contents were a concession to the limitation of written language, given the lack of ability to express tone and mood through text. Going on from there, translations of the texts on top of all those other concessions had to make sacrifices in content for a number of reasons. Just because Hebrew has a word like Shema doesn't mean that other languages have any word that means both hear and obey at the same time. And just because Hebrew has the sh sound and the y sound doesn't mean that Greek did. Just because Hebrew allows a masculine name to end with the ah sound doesn't mean that you can do it in Greek or Latin. Communication is always about compromise, and there is no communication when someone isn't willing to meet their audience exactly where they are. Concession is an act of love, and God's communication with us is all about love. Paul alluded to this reality when he told the people of Corinth, Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those without the law, like one without the law. Though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. This is 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19 through 20 from the Christian Standard Bible, which I really love. Why did Yahweh visit his people through Yeshua in the flesh? communication of his message on our level so we could hear and experience him. To the Jews, he came as a Jew. To a patriarchal culture, he came as a man. To a nation looking for a Messiah, he came from the line of David the king. To the Torah observant, he came as Torah observant. Just not always according to their exact standards on everything, but enough that they heard him. To an oral culture, he delivered an oral message. When you have dreams or when God shows you something, does he use the visual imagery of the time of Moses or Yeshua? Or does he show you things from your own experiences? This, you know, this is why I hate dream interpretation books. Because dream interpretation is very cultural and subjective. We see rabbits and we think of fertility and when they would see it as cleverness in the midst of chaos. We see a cow and we think of steak, but they would see a cow and think of wealth and fertility. Yahweh is not a God of confusion. He comes to us, whispers to us in our own language, 
relates to us according to our cultural understandings, and he will still be doing just that in another thousand years if Yeshua tarries. And how he talks to them will be very different than he talks to us. Lust is still, and still will be lust, and greed, and murder, and adultery. You know, some things never change. But he's more likely to speak to many through the written word, because that is what kind of culture we are now, and what we respond to best. Remember that when you read the Bible, this is communication not at God's level, but always at the level of the original audience. It's for us, but not to us. Next week, I think we're going to go back to the beginning and talk about the importance of genre and not reading every line of the Bible as though it's meant to be the same, you know, as everything else in the Bible. Genre is important. I can't wait to talk about that. 